0: Hello and welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. I'm Victoria Carthew and like you, I've been waiting ever so patiently for the latest Chris Hammer, Who done it to drop. I'm lying. I have not been patient at all. I've been champing at the bit to see what Nell and Ivan are up to and it was absolutely worth the wait. The Seven is on our shelves and Chris Hammer on our screens. Hello, sir. Congratulations.
1: Good morning, Victoria. Thank you.
0: Um, not only a brand new book, Chris, but also everything else is happening in life as well because there's a TV series out there as well.
1: There is, uh, Scrublands has been made a four-part series. It's on Stan, the streaming service, from November the 16th. And I believe after Stan, it will then go to free-to-air on Channel 9. So um, I've seen the first episode. I've had a sneak preview. It looks brilliant. They've done a most fantastic job with it.
0: I can only begin to imagine how exciting it is to have that going on while you've got an awesome new book uh, on the shelves as well. What about for you? What sort of involvement did you have in that and making sure that Scrublands, which was your, you know, the book that started all these things for you, what sort of involvement did you have? Look, not a lot,
1: to be honest, um, but it's been made by a terrific production company called Easy Tiger. These are the guys behind um, such great Australian shows. There's the Jack Irish series with Guy Pearce, uh, Rake, uh, Column from Accounts. They're great. And also the, the main writer is a friend of mine. So I really trust them. And looking at the first episode, they've done a brilliant job. Because in some ways, it's very loyal to the book. But in other ways, they've reimagined it um, and, and made it, I think, better for the medium of television.
0: Isn't that exciting? You know, don't you think, Chris, at the moment it is really exciting time. So many of our really renowned authors are seeing their work on the screen. And not that that's what matters. We care about what's in here. But it's just that kind of more recognition and acknowledgement of great Australian stories being told. Well,
1: that's right. I mean, television and film is very hungry for stories and for ideas. And so it's natural that they look, I think, to books for at least some of those ideas. It is terrific that, uh, yeah, many of my colleagues are getting uh these productions coming out of their work um i think it's recognition that we've got good stories to tell uh one of the reasons i um i haven't really pushed myself to be part of the television team is because i'm still fascinated and motivated to write books and get better at writing books because you know that's what i really love
0: well, I'm glad to hear that because we would be disappointed if you weren't. And that, I, I guess that's what strikes me as well is your work ethic, and I'm sure that's the part of, of being a journo and having deadlines and knowing you've got to get there. But to think that Scrublands and all that what's happened since then, that's only four or five years ago, and you've had another four or five books since then. Like it's 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 a huge turnaround and not something we often see.
1: Yeah, so The Seven is actually my sixth book. Yeah. Scrublands came out five years ago. So I've been oh, doing the book a year. Um People say, oh, you must be very self-disciplined. It's really not that. It's more that I love doing it and I'm kind of addicted to it. So if I don't do a bit of writing every day, I don't feel quite right. I'm a bit like that gym junkie who does If they don't do the exercise, they don't feel right. If I don't do the writing, I don't feel right. And lo and behold, after a year, I get a book.
0: And I'm not surprised because when you when you read, it's the same with all of your books. I remember being so caught up in the tilt as well, and The Seven is the same. The stories, like you're just so carried away by them. So I imagine writing it is is like that as well. I love um, on the cover, I know it's a, it is quite a collegiate industry, but I love that it's say that Benjamin Stevenson says, uh, it's unfair to say Chris is at the top of his game. Chris Hammer is the game. And I was like, that is such a, woo, thanks very much.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing an event with him uh, in a week or two. And so I, I'm really looking forward to thanking him personally. It is a completely over-the-top compliment, but, hey, you know, if it sells a few books, I'll take it.
0: Absolutely. I, I just When I read it, I was like, yeah, I love it. You know, it's such, a, it's such a strong endorsement. But also I just think it says a lot about the industry now, and, and I almost feel like through the past few pandemic years that we've had, um, there's been a real coming together and you all needed to support each other and we've got some great outcomes from it.
1: Look, it's one of the great things about being a writer and particularly a crime fiction author. People are so collegiate. We support each other. I think part of it is because we spend a lot of our time locked away by ourselves writing, that when we actually get together and see each
0: other, we really enjoy it. Yeah, perfect.
1: Now, you have headed,
0: I guess when we talk about great Australian stories. That's what you do so very well. You take us regionally, remotely, but you do it each time. You've done it very differently. Uh, and and when we uh, read The Seven, we're in a, a fictional place, you wandering. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You wandering? Yep. I really I would love to see it in real life. Uh, and The Seven is such a clever clever title because it tells us about the place and the seven founding families.
1: Yeah, so it's set in the fictional irrigation scheme. Um, But unlike most real-life irrigation schemes, this one hasn't been developed by the government. It's been developed by the original landholders, the the settler families who settled it in the 19th century. And a century after they've developed the scheme, these seven families have become very wealthy and very powerful. And the book starts, uh, this isn't a spoiler because it's in the prologue, the body of a member of one of those seven families uh, is found in rather spectacular circumstances in an irrigation canal. Uh, And Ivan and Nell come down to investigate and pretty soon things start ramping up. Uh, There's more crimes committed. They realize the killer's still out there. They want to catch them uh, before they kill again. But then uh, there's two other stories interwoven okay. in that. One's set in the 1990s, in the same place, in New Wonder Irrigation Scheme, but it's a young... Man, Davis, he's the heir to one of these seven powerful families.
0: I really like Davis, by the way. I really liked him.
1: Yeah, I like him too. I like all the characters, actually. I like um, Ivan. I like Nell. I like uh, Davis. I like Bessie. So Davis, is um, he's at uni. He's only 21. He's been invited to do an honours thesis in history. He decides for his thesis he'll research the origins of the U Scheme. And lo and behold, he starts uncovering a few skeletons in a few cupboards. And the third story is a young, part Aboriginal girl. She's 15 years old. She's a domestic servant. She's working for one of these families back before the scheme is actually developed. So it's 1913 in the years leading up to and during the First World War. And so for the reader, you've got these three stories uh-huh. interwoven. And at first they don't seem to have any connection with each other at all, but as the book goes on and the stories unfold, uh,
0: we can see how they are all very, very much connected. Absolutely, and I I love that and it's something you always do so well in your books is you weave those stories together. Um, What was really special about the way you've done this is that those three stories are told in such a different way. So, for example, the 1930 with Bessie, Oh, it was just lovely because her story is told through letters to her mother, and it's just the formality around letter writing and the language. There's something really comforting about reading something like that, and the way she tells a story.
1: Yeah, I do like the um, the use of letters because it it makes it a little bit arm's length. Yes, you can kind of see what Bessie is thinking, but of course, in letters. A little bit like social media today, you can you can say what you've done today, but you often put a bit of a gloss on it. Uh, so it's kind of what she's thinking, but you know it's a little bit more arm's length. Whereas with Davis, his story's written in the past tense. Um, Ivan and El's story is told in the present tense. So as as you go from chapter to chapter, it's a pretty clean break. You know, as you pick up each story, you know
0: exactly where you are. And it's actually, I mean, I guess as, as a writer's trick, it's a wonderful thing because it makes you push to the next one because while you're reading the next story, you're wondering about the last one and where that will go. So it's such a lovely way to propel you through a book.
1: Yeah, and there's quite a bit of um, craft to it, going back and making sure that one storyline isn't getting too far ahead of the others, that they, in a sense, work together and support each other so that the whole story is is moving forward and working well for the reader. Now, of course, you don't want the reader to be conscious of any of that. No, but, you know that's me working away in the background, trying to make it the best, the best possible read.
0: I think what's also interesting is because they are quite different timeframes, um, you get a real perspective of of evolution, you know, of the area and the region. So before the irrigation scheme, and then the beneficiaries, and then kind of what's happening now. And it's a, it's really just even the way you've used language. You get a real time stamp, don't you, as you move through.
1: Yeah, so there's a contrast in the book between you know the 1913, sorry, in the 1990 stories, because they both feature bachelor and spinster's balls, and these were originally in the country were were a way, you know, annual ball to get all the eligible young men and women mm-hmm. from the far flung properties together so they could meet prospective partners. So in Bessie's stories, it's still a very formal, uh, proper. A ball, you know, with chaperones and adults and all the rest. And by the 1990s, it's just sort of devolved into a bacchanalian piss up. So yep. you get this completely, complete contrast, not just in the writing style, but in the mentality of Absolutely. the characters and the nature of their communities.
0: Now, I know we. I would always ask you about this, but it's such an important part of what you do. And for anyone that hasn't watched us chat before, your maps are always integral. This one's right at the start. I've referred back to it about a dozen times. Um, but for, for those that don't know, you always include them and they're really integral to your story, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I love them. I, they originated when I did Scrublands because yep. it was a fictional town and I started just drawing a map for my own reference to make sure that, you know, in Chapter 2, the post office You know, if the post office was next to the bank in Chapter 5, it wasn't three blocks away, that sort of thing. And it was only at the last minute I submitted the map uh, to the agent and the publisher along with the manuscript, and we decided to go with it and got, (laughs) thank goodness, got a proper artist in, Alex Patochnik, to do the maps.
0: He he does such a great job. Um, So I'm with you. I love him as well. Yeah, no, they're fantastic and so crucial. I loved, um, you know, you've taken us to some pretty rough places, be it Opal Country or, you know, some pretty hard and not pretty places. Is a, it's a very different place. It's, um, I love how you describe the neatness, the ambition of it and the way it's laid out.
1: Yeah, it's, so it's, <clears throat> it's quite a prosperous place. At least at first it seems like everyone is doing well, not just these seven rich families but all the other farmers and all the rest. And as the story goes along, we see that in some ways that's a bit of a veneer, that not, not everyone's a winner in your
0: No, absolutely not. And that's why we find uh, Ivan and Nell back in town. Thanks for bringing them back to, to have a chat. Last time around in the Tilt, it was very much Nell's story. This is Ivan on the lead, isn't it? So do you, do you consciously take turns about when we're going to see and hear from characters?
1: Yeah, so Nell is very much part of the story, but she's yes. not a point of view character. So the present-day story is told through Ivan's eyes and you can see what he's thinking. Part of that is just, you know, there's already three points of view. So to have Nell as well might just confuse it. So having had her story, you know, her point of view telling the story in the last book, The Tilt, I flipped it in this one with Ivan. I'm starting to think of the next
0: book and maybe we'll shift back to Nell. Oh, interesting! So Ivan's got obviously got a lot going on. He's got a bit of family side issues happening. He's got a lot, but it was—I don't know—it's actually um, such a wonderful thing because when you know these characters and like them as you do, obviously, and all of your readers do, um, it is nice to kind of hear from them again uh, and see what they're up to. And it also gives you a chance, doesn't it, to give a different type of perspective on detective work and what they're doing and how they do it.
1: Yeah, I, I like the characters. They've grown a lot with me. One of the things I've always done, whether it was in the, in the first three books, the Martin, Scars, the Mandalay, Blonde books, or, or these ones, the Nell and Ivan books, is I've always wanted the characters to have skin in the game, some sort of emotional involvement. And that's very much the case with Ivan and Nell. They're not just got kind of a hands-off, objective investigators who come in who are only preoccupied with solving the crime. Some kind of abstract puzzle. They're really emotionally involved. What they discover affects them, and also their backstories, their relationships uh, with their families, their relationship with other police, their relationship with each other, of course. Um, so when we we often find that they get themselves into rather sticky situations either personally or professionally. So it makes them far more interesting for me to write and hopefully for the reader than simply, you know, a device, a vehicle to carry the book forward.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? I imagine to write police who are not just in their cop shop in Surrey Hills, you know, these two officers have to go across, you know, length and breadth of state and they're dealing with really different places, people and landscapes the whole time. So it's a really different type of policing.
1: Yeah, I mean... No crime books are really that accurate when it comes to police work because a lot of police work is rather mundane. They're forever worried about things like um, the ch- the chain of evidence and whether evidence will be admissible in court. And they're often in really big teams and they're often working multiple homicides at the same time. So Ivan and Nell being posted into the country... Is great because it means they have to be more self-reliant. They can't rely on huge, say, forensic teams, for example. Um, They've got to get in and, if you like, get their hands dirty.
0: It's that time of year. Our catalogue is out now for the mums and the other great women in your life. A book absolutely is the gift that keeps on giving. It gives that woman in your life, your mum, your grandma, your carer, Time out. I reckon they've earned it. So take a look at the QBD Mother's Day catalogue out now. Yeah, absolutely. And they do have that kind of core group of people they do rely on and trust. And that's where you get that real trust uh, with the people that that they deal with as well. Um, I wondered when you decided to to send them out there to these towns. Did you did you decide that um, we would see Nell sort of playing more of the? She's like the more like the logistics, isn't it, in a lot of ways? Whereas Ivan is very much the one going, doing a lot more of the interviewing, that sort of thing.
1: Look, not consciously, to be honest. It yeah. just it just where the story takes me, um, what works best. I think so. Um, he's he's still. She's now a fully fledged homicide detective but he's still the senior person. And so, a, you know, there, that plays into the dynamic. But what you see, of course, is Ivan is, Ivan is very reliant on Elle. Uh She's a great character. You know, she's very feisty. She's up front. She, she doesn't take a backward step. But on the other hand, she's vulnerable. She makes mistakes. Um, she gets emotionally involved with what's happening. So, I, you know, she's a
0: great character to write. The journalist in you, of course, always, I think, shines through. There's always some burning social issues and some wonderful commentary around that. And this time it is water rights. And I imagine this book will have huge appeal in the regions because this is a topic that really affects everyone uh, in, in the country. And you've written it from a, an angle that we might not, a lot of people might not have considered before.
1: Yeah, if you go to irrigation areas, what you'll find is pretty much all irrigation farmers will believe they're paying too much for water and they believe the market's being manipulated by hedge funds and big big city money movers, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a couple of issues in the book, but another one is political donations. Uh, The rules governing political donations in Australia are pretty opaque, so it's possible to donate large amounts of money to political parties with no one ever knowing about it. And I guess the other issue that just in the background there is uh the or- the origins of this scheme you know it, it that it wasn't terra nullius that once upon a time this was indigenous land that um, none of those issues are labored um, no. and i'm not trying to you know go the last thing i want to try and do is lecture readers no. but, but they're just sort of in the background because they they're part of the setting really of the town that these the town isn't just the landscape the climate the buildings We live with these issues washing around us all the time. And I think a lot of crime writers do that. It adds a sort of topicality to the books. If you have some, some of the concerns, if you like, of society, just as part of that, part of the setting, really.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's not even a slight edge of any type of lecture. It's just, but it's fascinating because I think that perhaps as a reader, you, you mightn't have always considered if you don't live, you know, we might complain about our water bill in Brisbane or Sydney, but you don't think about when people are saying they're paying too much for water, it's big amounts of water. And to think that their lives depend on it in a different way than ours would. Um, I think it's it's great because there is, there is kind of learnings and it makes you wonder and ponder what could be.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, and, and... I think part of reading any book, I'm not talking about my books here or crime books, it's just but, but fiction is, they encourage empathy. And the books I like is, is when, you, when you enter an immersive read and you're right there with the characters and, and, and you're kind of going along for their ride. And inevitably you imagine what it would be like to be them. And that's the power of fiction.
0: And speaking of power, uh, there's a, a big story, the seven are the seven families and that kind of concept of generational power and entitlement and how it sort of feeds down through the generations and what that breeds.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't really touched on it in any obvious way in the book. But again, that's an issue in Australia as you get this sort of intergenerational wealth that that some, some families, you know, the kids can go to the bank of mum and dad, To borrow money to buy a house and other kids can't so you know there's this division in Australia it's not it's not really there present in the book but you know you do have these seven families that are getting more and more powerful and more and more wealthy
0: and interestingly though even within those families there are haves and have-nots because you give us insights into um kind of old really quite archaic structures in terms of how families manage each other
1: Look, this is always a big issue in, uh, amongst farming families uh, is inheritance because, say, if, if, a, if a farm is a productive place that can, say, support one family and there's three or four kids, you can't split it in three or four because... So, so typically, once upon a time, it was the eldest son who would I- inherit the property and the others would have to go off and do other stuff um and that's still an issue on family farms uh what happens when the owners die what who how it's broken up or shared amongst the kids every farming family and every farming district in australia is well aware of that issue yeah
0: and and it, it, it's changed over time, I suppose, because the way that they farm has changed over time and what they're running and what the country's doing. And then, of course, climate change feeding into all of that. So it's, it's a real um, snapshot of generations, isn't it? And you've given us those three timelines to do that.
1: Absolutely. And it helps it helps you realise how much this country has changed in a century.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a, yeah, that is a really good way of looking at it. Did you have to do a lot of the, the, the water irrigation system and the way the actual technologies around it and what they do, it's quite fascinating. How much research did you have to do?
1: Look, I wrote a a non-fiction book uh, 10 or 15 years ago, right at the height of the millennial drought. I I travelled all the way through the Murray-Darling Basin, from the headwaters up in Queensland, down through New South Wales, Victoria, to South Australia, the lower lakes and the mouth of the Murray River. And what I was doing in that book was was exploring what was happening in the river system. So I, I actually researched a lot of these issues and talked to a lot of irrigation farms, whatever, when I was doing that book. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of background knowledge I had. And I also, uh, as a journalist, covered these issues uh, for the Age newspaper. So I had a fair amount of background knowledge there. Uh, I don't want to over-research things. Yeah. Because then you end up trying to explain things yeah. to readers. And that it's not a nonfiction book, it's a story. And I don't want any research or information or anything like that to get in in the way of the flow of the story. Um, uh, yeah. so, so no, I don't I try I deliberately try not to over research things. It's more like I write the story and then I go back
0: and kind of fact check is that true, is that true, is that true? So do you begin, and I love that, and that's, you know, that kind of it's almost like assumed knowledge because you've got such an incredible backstory and and history and knowledge from all of the other careers that you've had in the in the lead up to this. So do you genuinely start this not knowing exactly where it's going to go or did you have a fair plan?
1: No, I, I'm hopeless. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a so-called <laughs> no, panther. So I'm not a plotter. I'm a panther, which means I write by the seat of my pants. And typically I start... With the idea of a setting so in this case the irrigation scheme and then a private irrigation scheme and an idea which is often around the crime okay what's what's happening the um the body of the guy found in the irrigation canal uh is an accountant so that's this is all in the first chapter so i'm not giving anything away but it was the idea of what information do accountants have access to? And that's where the idea started, and it, I just start writing. It grows from there. One of the most difficult things I find now is who's going to tell a story. Yep. The present-day story is, is not difficult. It's either going to be Ivan or Nell or a combination of both, but the stories in the past often start writing from one character's point of view and then i go that's not working and switch to another um but yeah so the, the whole stories and the storylines just evolve and grow as i write it's not very efficient i end up throwing away a lot <laughs> i don't so so people say oh you've got great red herrings but they're not <laughs> they're not <laughs> deliberately planted there it's me that's me thinking is where the story is going and then i get a better idea But so that just sort of stays in there and the red thinks that's where the story's going. And they're right, that is where the story was going until it went in another direction.
0: I love it. I actually feel like you set yourself a challenge each time because three stories, seven families, multiple characters, it's like you're setting yourself, okay, what can I do? And it's like you're challenging yourself as you write.
1: Yeah, there are times where I'm kind of pulling my hair out it's going on. No, it's not going to work. I'm sort of in a bit of a panic. Um, so far, so good. Um, touch wood. Let's see if I can pull it off again this year.
0: I think you absolutely have. And I do want to mention for anyone that's joining us that even if you've never met Nell and Ivan before and you haven't read The Till and you haven't read, you can honestly pick this up because there's so much, it's such a story of its own. It's so, you encapsulate it all perfectly. So I, I enjoy it more because I love Nell and Ivan, but you can actually just enjoy this so perfectly on its own.
1: Yeah, I've had a few people already have done that, have read it as a standalone, and then they've gone back and read you know, the other ones, um, particularly Treasure and Dirt and The Tilt, which arrive in the Nell books. And and the same with the Martin scarston books too. If you read them out of order, it really doesn't matter that much. And that's, that's typical in crime fiction books because you can't just, by the end of the book, you've got to tell the reader what's happened, who the killer was, why they did it, all the yeah. background, all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, you can read them out of order, my books, but typically other other, uh, other crime writers who, who have a series,
0: you know, featuring a particular protagonist. Oh, well, you do it very well indeed. Chris, congratulations. Uh, the Seven is just what I was hoping for. Um, congratulations on that and all of the other great things that lie ahead with that. whether there's more TV or whatever it, there is, we just want to see more of these. So congratulations and, and thank you for joining us on Crime Club. Uh, thank you so much, Victoria. Thanks for your company on QBD Book Club, the podcast. Back soon with more author insights.